The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. A 24-year-old woman is home alone in bed. A man enters the apartment. She says he rips off her clothes and brutally rapes her. That man, her very own husband. He falls asleep in the bed. She goes to the kitchen, grabs a 12-inch fillet knife, returns to the bedroom, and slices off his penis. 25 years ago, one trial caught the attention of America and quickly became one of the most talked about cases ever. Everything about this case is crazy and bizarre. This is a Court TV podcast special, The Trial of Lorena Bobbitt. Welcome to the Court TV podcast. I'm Vinnie Politan, along with Seema Iyer, who is seated with me. And Seema, you ready to do something a little different? A little special. Yeah, I think it's special. I think it's different. Very cool. Yeah, and I think it's an opportunity for us to kind of go into the uh, Court TV vaults and and, uh, reminisce and and take a look at a case that uh, people will never, ever forget. Vinnie, it's been 25 years since the crime that forever put terror into the hearts and bodies of men everywhere. Oh, absolutely. Myself included. And <laughs> and I think a lot of people think they kind of know what this story is about. Sure, I, me too. But I don't think they really know the whole procedural history in terms of what happened in different courtrooms in this case. And of course, we're talking about Lorena Bobbitt, who sliced off her husband's penis. There, I said it. I said it. Okay? It's out there now. Listen, just for my mom's sake, can we spend the rest of this podcast you saying the penis word and not me? You just said it. I know. Now now she's already mad at me. You're all in. So I think people kind of know this story, right? She claims that she was uh, abused and a battered woman. She claims that she was attacked by her husband. And then the story is in, in defending herself or in acting out, she slices off her husband's penis, and then discards it, right? Um, And people know that she was tried for this. That's right, she was. But what we don't know is that he was tried for this. There were actually two different trials, two different indictments, two different sets of charges. And she's indicted first, right? Because she sliced off her husband's penis, right? So she gets indicted first, but then there's a lot of backlash about that indictment. And People looked, I think, a little closer into the entire circumstance surrounding this relationship and what happened that night. And as a result of that, he gets indicted. So she was indicted for malicious wounding, which, you know, she's facing like up to 20 years in prison for that. But the same prosecutor, and this is really unusual, right, for a prosecutor to go after one person and then indict the victim of that crime. But the thing is, when it comes to this, it's almost like a pseudo cross complaint, right? So he files a complaint against her. She files a complaint against him. And at least in my background, one prosecutor would have handled both indictments. Would have to, right? Because it's in the same jurisdiction and everything else. Uh, So he is now indicted for malicious assault of her. And procedurally, His trial, even though he's indicted second, his trial happens first in November of 1993, and it was a short trial, three days, 
jury deliberates about four hours. Wow, that's quick. That's super quick. And also, he went to trial pretty quick because the incident took place on June 23rd, 1993. So for him to go to trial in November, that is fast. That's super fast. I mean, uh, most of the cases that we cover at Court TV, it takes year, years. two years, sometimes three years Oof. for these things to get to trial. But it, it happens quickly. And he's found not guilty of the malicious assault, which was the alleged rape of his own wife. But why isn't he charged with a sex crime? Well, th th there's a couple things going on here. The, th the first thing is, is that uh, back then in Virginia, to be guilty of a uh, marital rape, you'd have to be living separately. And at the time, they are actually living together. They had an on-again, off-again relationship, had split up at different times, but at the, the, the time of this alleged rape, they're living together. So you're telling me at that time, in that state, a husband couldn't be the rapist of his wife. That's what you're telling me. No, unless there was severe physical injury. That would be the only factor, and that was not found in this case. And, and I think times have changed a little bit. Okay, but you know what? I think we have to listen to Lorena's side of the story about what happened, because you say if there wasn't serious physical injury, okay? Well, let's listen to this, because she sounds like she's saying something else. I said, I don't want to have sex. And he wouldn't listen to me. He wouldn't let me, let me go. He started to pull down my underwear with his foot. He pulled my, my underwear down. And he, um, he forced himself into me. My vagina was ripping over something. I, I couldn't say this. I can't describe. Maybe you don't understand because you're a man. But he didn't understand because he's a man. But it hurt me. <laughs> you can hear the tears. You can hear the struggle to get out the words. What what do you make of that? I I think it's real. And and you know the experts on both sides of this came to an agreement at the time that they believe she was a battered woman, that she was an abused woman. And we know there were prior calls to the house, so we know this is a volatile relationship. They met when she was 19 and he was 21. She was new to this country. She grew up in Venezuela and and came to this country. He was in in the military. And I think there's a combination of things going on here. A lot of immaturity um, on both of their behalfs, but clearly something was being done to her. And then this is talking about what happened that night. And it, and it seemed very real. It does seem real from the way she's telling us. I just could feel, especially as a woman, the way she's describing the ripping, I could feel her pain. And I'm sure for you as a man, when you've heard the details of what he went through, you physically feel it in your body. And like you said, yes, the police have said they have repeatedly gone to their house for complaints. There was a previous cross complaint between the two. The police say they've been there at least a half a dozen times. And so, yeah, there's this history, alleged history of abuse, but she has shown pictures to the media of prior instances of bruising. Now, just so we can get a little more about what she claims was her justification as a battered woman for this crime. Let's take another little listen. He kicked me. He told me that I told you to, not to cry. 
and he slapped me on my face. He pulled my hair and he squeezed my face. So we have at the trial, we have witnesses in the forms of experts, friends, neighbors, people who all corroborated her side of the story, that there was this prior history of abuse. I think what's also an interesting factor in all this, in at least what's going on in her mind, is that she also had an abortion. You remember this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And she, she I mean, she was raised Catholic, and, and this is something that you don't do. You don't get divorced. You you don't have an abortion. Um, what's interesting is, I, as I listen to her voice, and and it, it seems credible to a certain extent, what what happened in that trial of John Bobbitt? He was found not guilty of the assault. So the jury during his trial, now this is her testimony during her own trial, but she's saying the same things during his trial, and that jury did not believe her beyond a reasonable doubt. So do you, why do you think that is? It's, it's, it's difficult to call, and, and you know, we're looking at this, you know, from where we are. 25 years later. 25 years later, but you know in a courtroom as, as a former prosecutor, you know how difficult it is to prove cases beyond a reasonable doubt, and you've got to rely upon your victims. They've got to be beyond reproach. And I think that the problem here is that there are credibility issues for both him and her in this whole saga because of their youth, their immaturity, um, the problems that they've had. And, and, you know, she comes to the table with a little bit of a history herself, right? Oh, yes, she does. We want to tell us about it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, she had gotten in trouble for stealing from her employer. That's thousands right. Of dollars. Didn't she steal some dresses from I Nordstrom? I think it was Nordstrom's, Nordstrom, right. right? So you've got those issues out there, and then you're wondering um, somewhat about some of the other statements she made uh, that aren't 100% consistent with all of this, but you listen to the voice now, and you listen to it in, in the bubble that we're in, and we're like, wow, this woman sounds like she was getting raped by this man, yet a jury said no. Well, listen to this statement. So she told a police lieutenant hours, just hours after this incident, quote unquote, he always have orgasm and he doesn't wait for me to have orgasm. He's selfish. I don't think it's fair. So I pulled back the sheets then and I did it, which is entirely inconsistent from her defensive temporary insanity. But I think it's time that we pick it up to how did this happen? What happened? What was her state of mind? What was she thinking at the time? And we'll do that next. So we just heard how Lorena Bobbitt claims that, in essence, her husband raped her. What happened after that? I was drinking the water. (laughs) I tried to calm myself down, and and the only light that was on was the refrigerator light, and... uh, I saw the knife. <laughs> I remember many things. Things then. I remember a lot of things. <laughs> he said to me, I remember the first time he raped me. I remember when, when he told me about the syringes to go through my bones and I was going to die. Okay, so she tells the lieutenant one thing as if she remembers what she did. But in this snippet that we just heard. Oh, don't use that word. (laughs) 
God, I didn't mean to. I really didn't. I'm not trying to turn this. I know it's this. 25 years, but it's still too soon. I know, and I didn't mean to. I'm not trying to turn this into innuendo central. I know. Okay, but the way she describes that moment with the light pouring out of the fridge, she sees the knife, the memories flood, flood, flood her head of the abuse, the times that she thought she was going to die, the first time he raped her. Is that, okay, so you, the legal analysis, tell me, is that temporary insanity? Well, if you believe it. If you, if you believe all of it, it is, okay? Um, because it's, it's she's getting this, and, and the defense here, the traditional insanity defense is you don't know right from wrong, but this is a little bit different. This is the irresistible impulse. Like she had this impulse that she could not control. She could not stop herself from grabbing the 12-inch fillet knife and going into the bedroom and slicing off his penis. This impulse, she could not control or stop herself. And, you know, for people who aren't suffering from mental illness, who aren't in the midst of some sort of uh, uh, situation like she's in, it's difficult to relate to. So you rely upon the experts to talk about it, the, the mental health experts. And this is what the case was all about because you had the battle of the experts. You had the prosecution experts saying, no, 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 no. She had a goal here. If you have a goal and your goal is to remove the penis, then you are not suffering from temporary insanity. But the defense expert said, no, this is exactly what happened here. She could not control herself. Is temporary insanity almost the same as heat of the moment? It's close. It's right. it's really, really close. You know, heat of passion. You know, you're in the midst of something. But if you think about where we are in that night, the rape or alleged rape is already done and he's asleep. There's a cooling off period. Exactly. Here. I love, I love the cooling off period because yeah. it's such a courtroom vernacular. We always say the cooling off period when time stops and time starts again. So that's exactly what at least should have been argued, right? If she grabbed a well, and this something is what, off the nightstand. Right, something off the nightstand. Whatever, whatever is there, a pair of tweezers, whatever it would take. Oh, now you're insulting John Wayne Bobbitt. Yes, I mean, I now, am. now you're just, you're just, yes, you're I just am. cutting below the belt. Right. Sorry. But anyhow, sorry, sorry. If it had happened at that moment, I would look at it one way. But here, the cooling off. But, but we're not talking about heat. See, this is the difference between the heat of passion and the irresistible impulse. Is that heat of passion should have to happen at that moment. But this mental defect or disease, you can have that passage of time right? because it's, it's what's going on. And maybe it's the light from the refrigerator that triggers these memories. Or maybe she's just making it all up. Okay. Well, what does he say happened, Vinny? Well, here's the other part of this, right? Like you've, we've heard her describe what happened to her that night. And that was part of the untold story initially. The story that we all heard is what happened to him. Here's John Bobbitt in his own words describing the night he will never forget. She pulled on my groin area twice, I think. I felt a couple of jerks and then uh, up. And then after that, she just cut it off. So that's John Bobbitt describing the moment where his penis was cut off by his own wife. And he, he he's, he's sleeping. At right. the moment, this happens, right. and that's how he woke up. And, you know, I'll give you the perspective of, well, of I, any man that I hears this. I assume that's how he woke up. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that, will, that will wake you up. 
you know, every man, like you said, you know, was going to have a, a reaction to all of this. And, and the nation had a reaction to this. And this is why the story is what it is, because of what she did at that moment. The problem is, when you get inside a courtroom, he's your victim. If you're the prosecutor, this guy's your victim. And there are so many problems with this guy. And it all starts with the, the abuse and everything else. Um, and, and I think looking back at this case and, and looking at it um, as things develop, you have a, a victim like that. It's tough, but prosecutors don't get to pick their victims. They don't get to pick their witnesses. They are who they are, and, and he is who he is. Right, but it's not just that the history made him unsympathetic on his the His demeanor, his demeanor. His demeanor, right. His demeanor was awful, and... When we were discussing this with our extraordinarily amazing producer, Bill, Bill was saying something to the effect that, you know, the way John Bobbitt describes what happened, it doesn't, I don't know. It. I mean, we know it happened, right? We know it happened. But he's just so matter of fact, she cut it off. It's not like, for instance, when she, when the act began, why didn't he push her, shove her? Was he completely asleep? Maybe because he was so drunk. We knew that he had been out drinking with his friend. So maybe that I think it happened. I think it happened quickly, though. But how did... Well, I, I, you know, I really don't want to get I don't into know if a you're, you're not gonna, you're never going to expect this, this, but you're never going to expect this. Would you expect your spouse, your wife to slice it off? If that was your relationship with your wife, you should. You should, because these two were back and forth with each other for years at that point. Years, I think. But I don't think, but I don't think she ever really fought that. I, I, she was the victim most right, of the time, right? right? right so right. at what point do you expect that person to fight back like she did? Oh, okay, wait. How about this? So you were saying something about his demeanor. Would you have found him more credible, more sympathetic as a prosecutor? Would you have uh, been more pleased if he showed some emotion? Yeah, he, he's emotionless. That's that. That's a big problem. That is he, a big problem. He's not he's just ro- emotionless, Vinny. Even now, if you see interviews of John Wayne Bobbitt now, no, he's not just that. He's smug. He is not pleasant. He comes across terribly as a human being. And even after something like that happens... He should be the most sympathetic man in America. (laughs) He should be. Even 25 years later. He should be. But he's not. But he's not. And that's that's a problem. He's still not a nice person. But here's the thing, though. As he described what happened, I think uh, and for any man or male member of the jury would be... Male what? Male person in the jury would... Be able to visualize what's happening because yep. I've, I've, as I hear him describe it, I'm visualizing what is happening, and it's, it's, it's awful. It's, it's difficult, but because of who he is and how he's delivering it, all right. Well, you know, maybe I don't know. Maybe he deserved it. Is, 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 is you think that could float through the minds of, of a juror that somebody actually deserves the ultimate 100%, punishment? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think the Lorena Bobbitt supporters certainly believe that he deserved it. I think a lot of people, maybe there are even men in this world at that time, and probably more so now, that that 
Yes, 100%. I think so. But okay, so now the question is, does everybody remember? Because I didn't remember until I we revisited this. What happened? What to, happened next? Oh, what, what, what happened, happened to, to it? To it. We'll discuss exactly what happened to it next. Vinny, what happened to it? Well, where'd it go? Let's listen. Now, this is actually the cross-examination of Lorena Bobbitt at her trial by the prosecutor going after her about what she did with it. And you realized that there was something in your left hand. Yes. And you realized it was your husband's penis. Yes. And you were just horrified. Isn't that right? Yes. And you just wanted to get rid of it. Isn't that right? Yes. So you went and got rid of it. Just like that, right? Yes. Yes. Just like that. So there's two parts of this cross-examination I want to talk about. The first is, you know, finding out what happened to his penis. But the other part is, and this is a choice made by prosecutors, that you've got Lorena Baba on the witness stand being cross-examined by a woman because you would not want to have a man attacking Lorena Bobbitt on the witness stand. Oh, yeah. This was no so well strategized by the prosecution. So she throws it out the window. <laughs> the, the the rest of the story is for folks that don't know is that she actually calls the police right and does the right thing at that moment tells them where it is points out it's in the field somewhere so they've got a search team out right so you do like one of those grid searches where you div sure. divide up and everyone's down there with the flashlights wait can i tell you so i was obviously you know we've been reading up on this case and one writer whose name i i can't remember sorry but they wrote that officers were scouring the area. They're clutching their loins. Yeah. The officers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, God. But the amazing thing is, right, they find it. They pack it in ice and bring it to the hospital. If she doesn't call police, he's done. Oh, yeah. He's done. And, and the doctor's on record talking about that. He said, listen, the, the only thing I, I can't. We cannot build a new one. The only thing that can happen here, either we get it and we attempt to reattach it, or we'll just sew it up as is. So Lorena Bobbitt did the right thing. And I think, um, you know, looking in retrospect, you know, maybe that helps. Maybe there's a moment of clarity um, away from the temporary insanity that she's alleging that, uh-oh, I realize what I did here. Well, here's my problem with how she describes the throwing out, okay? So she's saying that uh, she doesn't realize it's in her hand until she's in the car. The problem I have is, so she cuts it off, right? So according to what she's saying, she almost blacks out until she's in the car. So it's this mechanical grabbing the keys, leaving the house, closing the door, all of this time it's in her hand and she doesn't realize right. it's in her hand? All right, let's go back in time now. Remember, this is 1993, so we don't have those cars where you walk up to them and they automatically unlock. So she has to unlock the door that's and my point. open the door. How do you do all that? I, with... I, that's what I don't understand. Right. I mean, I really find that To incredible. me, it's, it's, almost, it's, almost, yeah, it's almost like 
Jodi Arias, if you recall that trial, Jodi Arias talked about this fog that she was in. And the jury in that case did not buy her fog story. That was just a cover. So the question here is, is, is she covering uh, what she does actually remember by saying, I don't remember it because she doesn't want to remember it? Exactly. It's just very hard to believe that you go through all the steps from the cutting to the actual throwing out and just mechanically, like you described, having this thing in your hand and then, of course, juggling the keys. And was there a purse? So that, that, was goes, a... that goes to her credibility. No, I think it goes against her credibility. Right. That's what I mean, though. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So exactly. now. Right. So now for people who don't know, there's a nine and a half hour surgery that takes place. Yeah. It's miraculous. Not only is it miraculous, it gives John Wayne Bobbitt a new career as an adult film star. Really? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So he made two movies. One is called Uncut. <laughs> and he made a second movie, Vinny. He did. Two movies. Right. Some, two more than you and oh, I you made. Want me to, well, the second one was Frankenpenis. <laughs> here's the problem. And and looking back at this case Wait, from where- here's the problem? Now we're, this is a- now we're getting John to Bobbitt took this and turned it into his 15 minutes, right? His 15 minutes of fame. And he made these movies. He was- a regular on Howard Stern, <sighs> turned him into this celebrity. And I think all the things that he did afterwards made it easier for us to giggle about what happened to him. Of course, but okay, wait, two things. Number one, did you know he was in a band? Oh, no. Okay, do you know what the band was called? The band was called Severed Parts. True story. I'm not making this up, Vin. I read it. It's true. Okay, so that's... What, what instrument did he play? I don't, I don't know. Can we we'll put that in the next podcast? I'll, okay. I'll, I'll put an addendum to this podcast. But also, what you were saying is because of what he did after, uh, after you know, the incident and his films and everything and Howard Stern, that made it more of a joke. I may disagree because... At the time, people, the late night comedians, everybody was talking about the media. They say that Bobbitt jokes became a national pastime. So he profited off the jokes that everybody was already making. He did. He did. Now, for, for Bobbitt, you know, he didn't put himself in that situation of the loss of his... Right. Right. But he created this situation with his wife. So it, it's really a bizarre place because there's alleged criminal behavior back and forth. And he ends up being a celebrity. She ends up being a celebrity. They hire publicists. What criminal defendants are hiring publicists in the midst of, of their cases? It, it's, it's complete insanity. Wait, but, but it you happened. don't think that happens? But I think that happens now, right? Criminal defendants hire, having publicists? Mm, not really. No? I don't think okay, so. Okay, okay. Maybe I, no. I, think I a, guess unless there are celebrities already. But, right. Right. Now. Let's get back to the trial, okay? Because uh, prosecutors had a theory here in, in, in their case. And um, it was, it's all about motive, right? Why did she really do it? And prosecutors had their own version that had nothing to do with temporary insanity. Take a listen. Hadn't you told a friend earlier that if you ever found out he had an affair, you would cut his penis off? No, I did not say that. You have never said that? No, no, no. Revenge. 
revenge is the real theme of the prosecution case here, that she didn't do it because she was an abused woman. She didn't do it because she was temporarily insane. She did it because she wanted to get back at him. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. She didn't say, yes, I said that. No, in fact, she said, no, I did not say that, ma'am. No, ma'am, no. So uh, what? You're doing, you're doing exactly what you're not supposed to do. Which is what? Which is take the answer you want from the question, not from the answer. Cross-examination is all about the question. It's not about the answer. You know that. Of and you know I they've know. got someone else. She's got a prior inconsistent statement where she was talking about this. And you brought up the other inconsistent statement sure, that she made sure. to police where she wasn't uh, sexually satisfied by her husband who always satisfied himself. She wasn't satisfied. So was this an act of spite and revenge rather than what she said, which was... Um, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I had all these flashbacks. You know, actually, now that I think about it, and this is, goes to your point, because as officers of the court, we are not supposed to ask questions that we don't have a good faith basis to ask. So I would like to believe that the prosecutor asked that question because she did have direct information that Lorena told a friend if he ever had an affair that she would cut his penis off. So, right. and, so, and, so I understand, right. I understand your point. And, and that's, and that's consistent with the statement that she made to police about the sexual satisfaction that there's, she's not satisfied with the way the relationship is going. And this act of going after his penis had everything to do with a vendetta, with revenge. And it was purposeful. And she had thought about it before. It wasn't this sudden irresistible Impulse. No, it was a plan that she had based upon this volatile relationship where he was cheating on her and flaunting it in her face. Ugh, these two belong on the Hot Mess Express. Okay, Vinny, we've discussed the prosecution's case, but it's time to look at what Lorena Bobbitt's lawyers came up with for her defense. And we'll do that next. Okay, so clearly the defense theory of the case was very different. Let's take a listen to that. Psychiatric disorders were the product of the years of violence and abuse that she had suffered at the hands of her husband and that they combined to cause her to experience what Dr. Feaster will tell you was an acute psychotic break. Okay, so psychiatric disorder, years of violence, both sexual, physical, this is the defense. Now, what I think the defense did well in supporting that defense was provide witnesses, and not just expert witnesses, but the fact witnesses. There was, and I don't know if this person testified, but this person did speak to the media about, and this was a neighbor of Lorena's, who Lorena went to and said, I'm being raped, I'm being abused. So there were people that she did complain to, and there were, in fact, fact witnesses that testified which support that type of defense. And as we both know, psychiatric defenses are often impossible to support. To win, right. it, it's 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 difficult to convince a jury because there are people who are found not guilty by reason of insanity, but it's usually when the experts on both sides agree. 
the prosecution examines the defendant, the defense examines the defendant, and both experts say, oh, yeah, this person didn't know right from wrong at the time. This person couldn't control their impulse. In this case, the experts disagreed, so usually it's advantage prosecution. And you talk about the other witnesses, and I think another witness who was powerful in the case was the witness who described the scream. And this was someone who had heard them in prior instances and hearing noises of people, you know, engaging in sexual activity, but really vivid description saying how this was different that night. The scream that he heard that night was different. Obviously, he didn't see what was going on. But this all gets to, again, who is the alleged victim that prosecutors are have to unfortunately be in bed with in this trial is John Bobbitt. And with all this other testimony about what he did that night, sitting there with the jury sure. becomes a problem. And and you want to, and I think by giving the jury a reason, a, 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 a way to excuse this behavior and that, that excuse, and I'm not saying excuse in a way that like, oh, it's like a bad excuse, but the, the reason. An, a, a, an explanation. An explanation is a better word. Temporary insanity. She couldn't resist it because of all the abuse and the flashbacks. And I also think a lot of their individual demeanors supported her side of the story because he came across so glib and so matter-of-fact without emotion where she was consistently just tons of emotion pouring out of her, which we have heard throughout the last uh, however long we've been sitting here listening to the podcast. You can hear in her voice the emotion. So I think that really hurt his side. Absolutely, which is the prosecution side. Here's the one thing, though, and and um, through the years I've seen so many of these cases where you have a victim up there, and on court TV, when we put that victim on television— the viewers will watch, and when someone's crying, they're looking for actual tears. You mean water? Water coming, coming out, out of the eyes. Because yeah. that's, that's how many people will distinguish between someone who's legitimately, emotionally uh, overcome at the moment versus someone who is trying to... Um, demonstrate uh, <laughs> wait did you think that she had I didn't see I didn't see I didn't see when water. we looked at those clips I saw her grab tissues and she wiped her mouth I didn't see her dabbing her eyes so I I if I would guess that some jurors may have looked at at her and said oh you know what and and, right. and this probably pertains more towards his trial versus her trial but um, that's oh, I think the, that's a great point. That's the one thing I didn't see when I watched the testimony. When I hear it, though, it sounds very, very real. Seriously, this is why Court TV matters, because people miss the visualization of reality. Of There is no more reality television that is greater than the loss of liberty on the line, seeing in the courtroom, the drama. And we love podcasts, right? Both you and I are addicted to this stuff. But to see the water there, there, coming out of the eyes, you're right. There, there, there's there's something to that. And, and I think um, for her as a witness, him as a witness, you hear him, you hear one thing, you see him, you may see something different. But at the end of the day, both Lorena and John Bobbitt had credibility issues. So at the end of the day, should we find out what the jury ruled? Absolutely. In the case of Commonwealth of Virginia versus Lorena Lenore Bobbitt, we, the jury, find the defendant, Lorena Lenore Bobbitt, 
not guilty of malicious wounding as charged in the indictment by reason of insanity. Not guilty. Lorena Bobbitt was found not guilty. Were you surprised? Yes, because she did it. But And yes, because it was a finding of not guilty by reason of temporary insanity, which is so rare, so unusual. The only thing that makes it not surprising is, again, it comes back to who is my victim and does the jury like him? Does the jury believe him? And the answer to both of those questions is a resounding no. Okay, so just for our listeners, I do want to point out that the jury deliberated for seven hours. They found her not guilty due to insanity causing an irresistible impulse to sexually wound John. Okay, that is the sum and substance. So then she undergoes a 45-day evaluation by Central State Hospital, which was in Virginia, and that after that she was released. So She was free to go. Right. So it's not as if she was uh, mentally ill and they kept her in the hospital for an unknown period of time, which happens sometimes it's very common. for insanity. When I was a prosecutor, one of my first jobs in the office was I was in charge of all what they called in New Jersey the Kroll patients. These were everyone in Bergen County, New Jersey, who was found not guilty by reason of insanity. These are people who have killed other people, who have done all these different crimes. And while they were no longer in car- they're not incarcerated, but they're still under the jurisdiction of the judicial system. And some were in inpatient programs, outpatient programs, but they'd have to check in with the judge every other month to see how they were doing. But that didn't happen with her because she was fine. It was just in that moment of temporary insanity that that she had. So a great a great result for the defense. Okay. So now it's been 25 years, Vinny. Tell me, do you think, because I have a lot of thoughts on this subject, do you think the verdict would have been different today? No. Not for her. But remember, there were two trials. Okay. I think in today's era of Me Too, I think there would be a greater sense of what rape is and that no means no and that any man or any woman who engages in that activity with someone who has said no can be found guilty. So I would think in that first trial... Prosecutors would have a better chance of convicting John Bobbitt, but I think the same result here, because this wasn't a a case of, hey, this didn't happen. This is a case of what was her mental state, and I don't think there's anything happening today that would harm her as someone who is alleged being sexually abused and physically abused over the course of years that would um, make it easier to convict her, because I think she'd be seen even more as a victim today than back then. Well, okay, so this is a good point that you're bringing up. Was she seen as a victim? Men were mostly on his side, okay? And I thought that women would naturally be on her side. But- 25 years ago. 25 years ago, I thought every woman would be on her side or was. But no, in fact, when I did a lot of research on what was going on at the time, and it sounds like working class women were on her side, but intellectuals and activists who call themselves feminists were not on her side. In fact, there was a woman, Susan Estrich, okay? So she was a USC law professor and the campaign manager for Michael Dukakis. Right, was a I pro- remember her. Yeah, it was- So I'm older than you, so I okay. remember her. <laughs> Barely. Okay, so you know what she said? That Lorena Bobbitt is a criminal. She is not a feminist 
heroin. And she said those who flocked to the defense of Lorena Bobbitt were doing a disservice, a disservice to battered women. Why would you not be on her side? Because of the violence. Because of the violent act. Okay. Are there are there other ways to to respond to that? Is there a way to what? get away? Is there a way to go down and, and sign a complaint against him? Is there... Oh, God. Sign a complaint? What is that going to do in the middle of the night when somebody's raping you? You know, listen, Vinny, I there have to tell you. There was a third person in, in, in the apartment that night, by the way. Yeah. His friend oh, wait, was there. Talk about that. Tell well, me. his friend was there. He's the one who drove John Bobbitt to yeah, who, the hospital that night. And I don't know what he's doing during all of this. That's, That's a great question. The, Did he screaming, testify at the trial? I don't know. If, with all the screaming and everything else going on. so He was also drinking, though. So yes. he may have been passed out. Drinking buddy. Yeah. Right. Drinking buddy. But you know what? Listen, I'm going to be honest. This is not fair that people are criticizing her for being violent when what else was she supposed to do? And I think in today's world, it would have been different. It, it, it absolutely would have been. I, I'll get back to, though, if it happened in the moment of the attack or just after the attack, I might be with you because it's, it's more self-defense. But again, there's this he's passed out drunk. He's at that point, And now she's acting out either through insanity or through revenge. But the question is, would the feminists have been with her? Well, the feminists. Would, now, I think no, what would have happened- No, back then. Back then, if she did it in, in the in the heat of the moment, right when it happened, right after the rape I occurred- I believe so. You think they would have been more yeah. on her side. Okay, I just want to point out one other thing, and this happened uh, after the verdict. The president and vice president of the Women's Freedom Network in Washington, D.C., they wrote a letter to the New York Times editor. And these women, Rita Simon and Kathy Young, and they said spousal abuse was not an excuse for legalized revenge. Okay? They did not believe her defense. Here, here's, here's where I think things would be different today. Social media. And I think it would have created this incredible divide in our country that, the, you know, everyone knew about this case back then, but everybody wasn't exchanging their opinions on it. And you know how... Today, it's all about politics. Yeah. I think at this moment, <laughs> yeah, it all would have been about John Bobbitt's penis. And people would have chosen sides. And you're either with him or you're with her. And I, and I think the fight on social media, if this happened today, would have been uh, to the extent that we're, we're fighting about politics. But it would, wouldn't have been Democrat, Republican. It would have been us against you guys. So it would have been a gender division. I believe for the most part. There would have been exceptions. There, there would have been exceptions, but I think it would have created this incredible, incredible divide. I, I just want to point out something else. So in all of this discussion, because there were these, let's say, intellectual, maybe more educated feminists. That's a good way to put it. So the more educated feminists were saying, OK, this is not uh, a justification for violence, in essence. Right. But the problem was no one was saying how she could have gotten out of there. They're saying, okay, don't commit violence, uh, call the police, report it, whatever. But again, look at this woman. She's a young woman. She was, what, at the time around, I think, 24 when the incident took place, yeah, right? So, yeah, so she's, yeah, so she's, she's young. She, I believe, was a green card holder, right? That's why they had to get married. So I don't think she was a citizen. By herself. Not, she wasn't making enough money. She was working at the nail salon or she, yeah, she was doing something 
something like that. So she didn't have the means. So you have to really look at women in that position who, and there's so many women like that in this world who are getting beat up, who don't have parents or siblings or money or means or education or opportunity to get out. And nobody talked about it then. People are criticizing what she did, being violent, but then give me an alternative. Tell me how am I supposed to get out? And no one did. Call 911 when he's passed out drunk. That's, I mean, that's the answer for that night. You, you know, there's another part to all this because, and, and we've, we've done some of the puns here, right? And I'm comfortable doing those because of the life that John Bobbitt has led, and it's always about him. However, I think if this same thing happened today, I think the late-night comics would have to take a moment to pause before they started with the, with the, with the um, jokes. And the reason being— They don't pause at anything no, anymore. No, oh, no, they do. They do. They do. Because I think it would be dangerous for oh, comics. Oh, I know why. Go. tell. I, because go you're now joking about a situation where a woman is alleging that she has been raped. Okay, And you've right. turned a, a, the rape of a woman into a late-night joke. How is that going to play on Twitter? I withdraw my earlier statement, Counselor. You're right. You're yeah. absolutely right. Because in this climate Jimmy of- Kimmel wouldn't be able to joke about this. Not, not- No. Not- no, you're right. In the climate of Me Too and political correctness and increased sensitivity- Towards women, you're absolutely right. They may even not... though the joke's about him, she's alleging she's been raped, and I think that's how it all ties together. But I think at the end of the day, though, she's found uh, not guilty. He's found not guilty, and they go on with their lives and... on the Hot Mess Express. Yes, what a story! What a story! Yes, Vinny, it certainly was. <laughs> it was. So, folks, if you if you like trials and cases like this you can watch us because we're on television on on the television people yeah you can get a digital antenna make sure you scan it rescan it get us and uh we'll be delivering justice for you each and every day and of course every week here on the podcast but now it's time to go it's time to go thank you so much for listening i don't want to cut it short but we got to (laughs) go this podcast is a production of court tv Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.